Colossians chapter number 2 this morning, and I'd like to preach for a few moments to you on this thought, what did the cross look like from heaven? You know, perspective has much to do with how we experience life. And what might look like one thing to me might look like another thing to you. I've told folks before about me and my wife and and, uh, our marriage and our relationship. We don't ever fight, ever. We never have fights. We have moments of intense fellowship, but we never fight. You know, and what might look like fussing and fighting to one might look like dancing to somebody else. Perspective deals with how we experience the world. We know what the cross looked like from down here. It's not difficult to see Christ evidently set forth crucified among you. And the truth is, if you've ever been born again, it was because at some point in your life, in a spiritual sense, you were able to see that Christ died for your sins. But I wonder what it would be like if we were to look from God's perspective at the cross. I understand that the Bible says uh, that my ways, the Lord speaking said, my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. And so I believe that the cross may have looked a little different to the Lord than it looked to the world. And I believe the book of Colossians chapter 2 gives us some of these truths, and I want to preach on them for a few minutes. Beginning in verse number 8, the Word of God says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And ye are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with Him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with Him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised Him from the dead. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath He quickened together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to His cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, I'd ask that You would bless now Your Word to the hearts of Your people. Lord, I I understand that it is beyond me to accomplish what needs to be accomplished today. I confess myself inadequate and insufficient before heaven, before you, and before this crowd for the preaching of your word. But Lord, where the arm of flesh may fail me, I'm leaning upon the unction and power of the Holy Ghost to do that which was beyond us to do. Father, in a group this size, it certainly wouldn't be astounding to find out that there may be some that do not know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. I pray that before this day, they'd see themselves the way God sees them. Lord, I pray that before they leave here this day, that they'd see the cross the way God sees the cross. And that they'd see their need the way you see their need. And that they'd be saved before it's everlasting too late. Now, Lord, we do pray and ask all these things in the name which is above every name. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. 
you know, as we've read these few verses before us, and I'm actually, I'm going to go ahead and confess to you, I'm only going to preach on three of them. But we have sort of a picture in verse number 8 of how the world looked at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think this would be a good verse for every single young college-age person to memorize if they're going to go into higher academics because they're going to need it. Paul says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. You see, when the world looks at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, they see it as a failure. They see it as inadequate. They see it as foolishness. It tells us something that they place so little value upon the cross that they would put philosophy and vain deceit and the traditions of men and the rudiments of the world. You know what that means, the rudiments of the world? It means the rituals of the world. Any sacraments, any, uh, any secret rites that men might put above the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, beware of those things because the world doesn't put much value on the cross of Jesus Christ. Can I tell you something? That Bible Christianity is not popular today. Nor has Bible Christianity ever been popular. The cross has always been hated by the world. He goes on in verse number 9 to describe how you and I might see the cross of Jesus Christ. For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now that's a fancy way of saying you believe He's God in the flesh. Now, there's nobody that's ever been born again but what they knew and accepted this truth that Jesus Christ was not just a good man, not just a good teacher, but was very God in the flesh. And when I came to Him, I understood that. There's a lot of things about Christianity you don't have to understand to be saved or you don't have to accept to be saved. Uh, But this is one thing that there's no debate, no compromise on. If you don't have the Son, you don't have everlasting life. And so you must accept that truth. Verse number 10, and ye are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power. Boy, wouldn't it be good if Christians could grab hold of that truth more? When you got born again, you came to Him because you believed He was all you needed. When you got born again, you came to Him because you believed that your good works weren't enough, your church membership wasn't enough, your baptism wasn't enough, uh, that uh, your morality was not enough, that your money was not enough, but you recognized that in Him you could be complete. You came to Christ to complete you. Verse number 11 says, "...in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with Him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised Him from the dead." You came to Him because you believed that He could raise you from the deadness of your sins. You came to Him because you believed He could change your life. When it describes the circumcision that's not made with hands and the putting off of the sins of the flesh, what it's saying is that you came to Him because you knew He could change your life. Let me tell you something. Part of the reason that we don't see as many people saved as maybe once we did in society is we don't believe, we don't preach a Christ that changes men the way that we once did. Let me tell you something. Your sin may be powerful, but Christ is more powerful. And your sin may be abundant, but I've got news for you. Where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. 
And you're here and you say, Preacher, God couldn't save me. I've been too many years living this way. I've done too many things wrong. The things that I've done wrong are worse than the things that other people have done wrong. I'm too dark. I'm too black. I'm too wicked. I'm too filthy. There's no way that God could save me. Well, there's somebody you're going to have to argue with about that. In fact, if the Lord will help us, we're going to preach on it a little bit tonight. You know what Paul said? Paul said that this is a faithful saying and worthy of all expectation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, Paul said. Paul said, you think you were bad. I was worse. And when you came to him, you came to him because you believed he could change you. And he's still able to change you. But in verse number 12, we find a shift in the perception. Paul uses this language, which is very interesting, in verse, or excuse me, verse 13. He says, and you. Now, he's just been talking about you, and he's just been talking about me. But he says that God has done all this, and God can do all this, and this is the way that we view God. But then he says, and you. Let's talk about you for a minute. And let's talk about what the cross looked like through God's eyes. Let's talk about what you looked like through God's eyes. I want you to notice four things with me this morning. And I believe it'd help us if we could see things the way God does, don't you? I believe if we could just see things the way that God does, it would change the way that we live. I want you to notice, first off, the sinners at the cross are seen from heaven. Now, it says in verse number 13, two things about a lost sinner. Now, I'm going to tell you how the world describes the lost sinner. The world describes the lost sinner as someone that is merely sick, someone that merely lacks control or self-control, someone that is merely morally deficient, someone maybe that is uneducated or ignorant or poor, and all of these environmental things cause their iniquity and their wickedness. In fact, one of the popular things in psychology today is this ideology that a person is merely a product of their environment. Hey, somebody walks into a college and shoots and kills ten people. It's because the way uh, that they were brought up. Somebody walks in and does this or does that. It was because they were brought up in a rough environment. Can I tell you something? I worked the bus ministry. I worked in a rough part of towns. And I met a lot of young people that grew up in bad situations. Not just rough situations. I mean bad situations. I'm talking about people that grew up didn't know who either parents were. I'm talking about young people that they'd ride to the church bus on Sunday morning and they'd pass by their mother down on the street corner on their way into church. I'm talking about young people that grew up in homes with needles scattered on the floor uh, with abuse every which way that you turn. But God came into their life and saved them and changed them. God made a difference in their life. Let me tell you something. Your circumstances do not dictate your actions. You do not have to live the way that the world tells you you have to live. Oftentimes, people think that's the reason a sinner is what he is. No, listen to what God says. Paul says, and you being dead, you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. You know how God views the sinner? He doesn't just view the sinner as morally deficient. He doesn't just uh, view the sinner as a product of bad upbringing or bad circumstances. He doesn't just view the sinner as being sick and without self-control and unable to help himself. Let me tell you something. We spend a lot of time trying to convince God that we're good people. We spend a lot of time trying to convince God that we're religious people. We spend a lot of time trying to convince God that we're trying real hard. You know, when God looks from heaven upon mankind, you know what He sees them as? Dead. Dead. You see, God never claimed that you were immoral. He just said you were dead. God never claimed that your problem was you aren't a member of a church. God says your primary problem 
is you're dead in trespasses and sins. And therefore, joining a church won't get us to heaven, and it won't change our lives. Getting baptized won't change our lives or get us to heaven. Working harder won't change our lives or get us to heaven. Uh, Giving money to a charitable cause will not change our lives or get us to heaven. None of these things. The only thing that can change us is we have to be made alive. Life has to be breathed into you. You right now are dead in trespasses, in sins. He describes the sinner, number one, as dead. He says, and you being dead in your sins... But then he describes the sinner as being defiled. He says, and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now, it's interesting because we do not know the past lives of the people that Paul is writing to. We do not know much about the history of the church at Colossae. We certainly cannot and do not know who it was that Paul may have had in mind when he wrote these things. But you see, I think that's the truth of it. I don't think there was any one person Paul had in mind. I believe Paul was speaking collectively about humanity. And he says, you all were defiled in your flesh. Let me tell you something. Deep down within the heart of every single person in this world is the rebellion, is the renegade nature, is the iniquity of a sin-fallen individual that is depraved. You don't have to teach a little child to do uh, wrong. You only have to teach him to do right. Man left unto himself will not get better. He will inevitably get worse. And the reason why, listen now, uh, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That's our nature. That's who we are. We are tainted. We are corrupted. We are polluted. We are defiled. The problem is not without. The problem is within. Oh, that men might recognize that the biggest enemy they have is the person that looks back at them in the mirror when they wake up in the morning. You can fix everybody around you. We live in a a world where uh, the blame game is played constantly. I mean, just constantly, constantly. Somebody walks in, shoots up a college, let's blame the NRA. Let's blame guns, you know. Let's blame anybody but the person that actually perpetrated the crime. We live in a world of shifting blame, passing the buck, kicking the can down the road. That's the world that we live in today. And do you know why man does that? Because he knows inherently somewhere down deep within that he is indisputably and undebatably guilty. He's trying to shirk his own responsibility. He's trying to shift the blame and guilt that he feels within the depth of his soul to some other human being to try to atone, to try to bring some sort and some semblance of peace in his life. Do you know why he does that? Do you know why it is that you can go into the deepest areas of the jungle? You can go into the most remote areas of the wilderness. You can go to places where man has never seen anything electronic, where man has no concept of a motor vehicle. And you know what you'll still find? They're unpolluted by our ideology, unpolluted by all of the vehicles running up and down the road and all of the gun crime, you know what you'll find? You'll find people killing each other with sticks and knives and rocks. You know why? Because it is a sin problem. Because we're sinners. You find wickedness and iniquity all over the world because it is intrinsic to human nature. See, we may look at ourselves and think we're pretty good. I mean, we all do, you know. Um, I mean, you're not as good as me, but I'm pretty good. You know, that's how we all think. And there's a lot of people that are on their way to hell because they think they found somebody worse than them that they can point to. Nobody thinks they're perfect. I mean, listen, nobody can think they're perfect unless they're delusional. 
Everybody understands that they're not perfect, but you know what they always say? They always say, hey, I may not be perfect, but I'm not as bad as some. I may not be sinless, but I'm pretty good. But what does God say about that? Now, again, if you're satisfied with your opinion, well, nobody can help you. But if you want to know what God thinks about it, I can show you what God thinks about it. He says in Psalms chapter number 14, The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. In other words, he wasn't looking for perfection. He was just looking for folks that were simply seeking God. Those that understood their condition and wanted to seek God. And you know what he says? They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Now, friend, you can argue with it if you will, but that's the Word of God. Now, if all you care about is what the church says or what you say or what your family says or what society says, then you can find lots of answers. But if you care about what God Almighty says, that's His opinion. He looked down from heaven. He surveyed mankind. He examined their righteousness. And He said that their attempts at righteousness are filthy rags. And they're iniquitous. And they're wicked. And there's not a single one of them that doeth good. There was a man that came to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he, uh, he had grown up in church. <laughs> you can tell it because he's real polite, you know. And, and he comes up and he says, Good master! He knew that was the way you were supposed to address a Jewish leader. And he comes to him and he says, Good master! And Christ stops him right there and he says, Well, wait a minute. There's none good save God. None. You know what he was saying? He was saying, Let's stop with the political correctness. Let's stop with the politeness. Let's stop with the flattery. And let's get down to the meat and potatoes of this thing. God's the only one that's good. So am I God or am I not God? Because the reality is, as we look around at this world, there's nothing that separates you from the people that are around you. You're not intrinsically better, nor am I intrinsically better than any other human being. We've all gone aside. We've all done wrong. We've all become filthy. We're, none of us do good. No, not one. The only perfect and sinless standard and measure that we can look to is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one that in Him was no sin. He did no sin. He knew no sin. But He did become sin for you and I that we might be made the righteousness of God. So you You've either got to recognize who and what He is or quit with the political correctness and the nonsense. Just quit with it. Go ahead and be honest with yourself. Let me tell you something. There's a lot of real politically correct people that are on their way to hell because they won't face the honest matter of the situation. I'm not talking about being rude or being uncouth or being unkind to people. I'm not advocating that. What I'm saying is this. Let's, let's all take the masks off and let's just face ourselves for who and what we are. Let's quit worrying about everyone's opinion. Let's ask ourselves, where do I stand with an almighty God? What does He think of me? Well, we see in this passage that He qualifies sinners as being both dead and defiled. Or we might say it this way. We see that they are sinners by their nature. They are dead. And they are sinners by their actions. They are defiled. So we see God's view of the sinner's at the cross. Then look at this next verse. It says, And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now you know what God's saying there, don't you? Paul is saying this is how God views you. 
God sees you as dead, but He come to give you life. God sees you as defiled, but He come to offer forgiveness. Here you are, and you're in a mess. I mean, you're in the pit, you're in the miry clay, you're in the depths and dregs of sin. There's nothing good about you, there's nothing righteous about you, there's nothing worth it or worthy or worthwhile about you, but God loved you. And He came and died upon the cross of Calvary that He might do something in your life. What did He want to do? We see the sinner at the cross viewed from heaven, but we see the salvation of the cross viewed from heaven. Now, what is salvation at its very core? There are a lot of differing opinions about what salvation is. If you were to go to some churches, they would tell you that salvation is being a member of their church. Let me go ahead and tell you, lest you should wonder, that just because you're a member of this church, that doesn't make you saved. And just because you're not a member of this church, that doesn't mean you're not saved. Church membership cannot do anything to save you. The communion table cannot do anything to save you. Let me tell you something. When we, when we partake in communion around here, guess what? The bread stays bread and the grape juice stays grape juice. And i got a little secret for you. Despite what everyone else says, it does with theirs too. It does with theirs too. It cannot save you. It cannot make you clean. I believe you ought to, after you've been saved, I believe you ought to be baptized. I mean, we're for it. we got a big bathtub. Just, I mean, special for it. That and my baths. But... <laughs> I believe in it. It's scriptural to be baptized after you've been born again. Baptism has no salvific quality or power within it. In fact, one of the verses that they have tried to take out of new Bibles is in the book of Acts chapter 8. And the reason is because it is such a staunch and clear and, and foundational verse that refutes the idea of salvation by baptism. Philip is uh, journeying along with the Ethiopian eunuch and he's been talking to him about the Lord and about the uh, lamb that was slain for the sins of the world in Isaiah 53. And that uh, Ethiopian eunuch looks at Philip and says, Philip, see, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized. Now, if you've got some of the new Bibles and, you know, they've come through and tried to change it back because they got caught. But uh, for a lot of years, the New International Version was this way. And it may still be this way. I don't know. I don't, I don't own one to study by. I don't own one to carry, uh, to compare by. Uh, but if you own one, you can check me on it. I know it used to be this way, but it's not still. But if you were to read it in that uh, perversion, it would go down and say, see, what doth hinder me here to be baptized? And then the next verse would say, and they straightway went down to be baptized. But you see, you read in the King James Bible and it tells you the truth of the matter. Philip looks at him and says, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. The implication in the new perversions is that there is no prerequisite to baptism, that baptism is the substance and purpose uh, of it, and that is what produces the Christian life. But it is not. The new birth is the only thing that can produce life in someone that is dead in their trespasses and sins. There are two things that God said salvation is all about. Notice, first off, the quickening power of salvation. Now, you know what it means to be quickened. I hope you do. If you don't, I'll tell you. It means to be made alive. God says, your first problem is you're dead, but I came to give you life. Your first problem is you're dead in sins and trespasses. I didn't just come to pretty you up. Boy, I, I tell you, it's astounding. Uh, you know, we, we just had a couple funerals around here, but I, I, the, the funeral homes do such a good job. Man, they did good on Brother Ted, Miss Vicky. They, I mean, he really, he, I, I think he looked better than he normally did. But, I mean, they did a good job, you know, and you look, and, uh, man, I mean, they'll take the, the body and, and they'll, you know, they'll paint it up. And they'll, I don't know how Brother Ted would have felt about wearing makeup, but he didn't have a say in it at that point. 
And, they, you know, they'd put makeup on, they'd dress them up, and they'd put clothes on them, and they lay them in that casket out there, and everybody walks by and says, oh, how beautiful, oh, how wonderful they look. You know, that's the best that mankind can do with a dead body. They can put paint on the outside. They can prep the hair. Uh, they can put a suit on it. They can put glasses on it. They can put it in a beautiful casket and try to beautify that dead body. That's the best that mankind can do. But let me tell you something. When Christ came into this world, He didn't just come to embalm dead uh, sinners. He didn't just come into this world to paint us up and pretty us up and put a new suit on us and leave us dead inside. When Christ came into this world and died on the, cry, on the cross of Calvary, it was that He might give us life and life more abundantly. He didn't just come to leave us dead. He came to give us life. He's quickened you. He's made you alive. We see the quickening power of salvation, but we see the complete pardon of salvation. And He's forgiven you all trespasses. I'm glad that... I'm glad God had enough foresight to save me forever. Aren't you? Because if He had just saved me for a moment, I surely would have lost my salvation. But we know you can't lose your salvation. Why? Because of this verse right here. One of hundreds I could give you. But he says that he hath forgiven you, having forgiven you all trespass. Now you have to understand, God is not bound within time like you and I. That doesn't just mean trespasses in the past. That doesn't just mean trespasses in the future or in the present. That also means trespasses in the future. It's interesting when you study how God deals with sin in the Bible. As you go through the Old Testament, you'll find that there were times... Uh, the, the Old Testament word is the word atonement. Kafar is the Hebrew word. In fact, it's the same Hebrew word that's used concerning the slime that covered the ark uh, that sealed the water out whenever uh, Noah was a little baby and they put him in that ark of bulrushes. And then later on, when Noah uh, built the ark... Uh, I said Noah. I meant Moses. Amen. But uh, when Noah built the ark... Uh, that uh, him and his family went in, they also used that. And it has the idea of covering, to cover. You know, that's all that animal blood could ever do in the Old Testament was merely cover sin. It could not do away with it. There are a lot of ways that, uh, that our sin is described geographically uh, in the, the Old Testament. The, the Bible tells us that our sins have been covered. The Bible says that God has put our sins behind His back. The Bible says that God has uh, separated us from our sins as far as the east is from the west. The Bible says that our sins have been cast down as deep as the depths of the sea. But you come over to the New Testament, none of those things are dealt with. You know what God says in Hebrews chapter 10? He says, their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Listen to me, if they were as far as the east is from the west, I don't know if you know much about this globe, but if you keep on running, you'll catch back up with it. If they had been at the depths of the sea, I don't know, maybe the devil would have put on his scuba gear and swam down there and tried to dig them up. Maybe if God had put him behind his back uh, sometime when I tried to run from God, God would have turned around and seen my sin. Uh, maybe if uh, all of these things, you can find reasons why God may have come upon them again. But you come to the New Testament and they're not that way. God says, I won't remember them. I won't remember them. I won't remember them. They're gone from my mind. He came to forgive us of our sins and our trespasses. Now, there's a lot of folks who won't get saved because they don't believe they have no sins and trespasses. And they have this mentality, how dare God, how dare God expect me to ask forgiveness of Him? I had a rough life growing up, or, or I lost somebody that I love, or, or I fell on skid row, and I don't have uh, the kind of money I expected out of life, and why should I ask anything from God? I'll tell you why. Because He's God, and you're not. <laughs> 
And uh, it's His righteousness and holiness that's been offended. It's His heaven that you're wanting to get into. Somebody say amen there. And so it is up to Him. And so you're to approach Him in the only way He can be approached, and that's through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, asking forgiveness of sins. I I said earlier uh, that I hope the Lord would show each and every person here their greatest need. And let me tell you something. If you're lost here, your greatest need is Calvary. Before you need anything else, before you need your bills paid, before you need your addictions gone, uh, before you need your marriage fixed, before you need your health problems gone, if you're here today without Christ, the greatest need that you have is to have your trespasses forgiven, your sins pardoned for God to save you from your sins. It's the greatest need that you have. When God looks at salvation, it's not about building a great denomination. It's not about merely putting food in folks' bellies. Let me tell you something. I I appreciate the work that missionaries do. And we support missionaries that do endeavor in a humanitarian aspect. Uh, but did you know that uh, this is part of the reason? I, I've never gone dug a well anywhere. I mean, I don't, we don't just send boxes of shoes for no reason. Uh, because you can send somebody uh, to hell with a glass of water, a sandwich in their hand, shoes on their feet, and air conditioning. But if they don't get born again, none of it means anything. I understand that the gospel where it's present in a culture will change it. I, I'm, I'm very aware of that. Uh, let me tell you something. You know part of the reason... It's going to sound ugly, but go ahead and... Uh, we got food, so I know you'll forgive me. This is, this guy, but, but I want you to listen close. You know the part of the reason that you're going to go home and pull into a two-car garage in an air-conditioned house, and there's folks in the Middle East that are going to go and uh, park their camel in front of a tent and cook up goat meat for lunch? You know why? Listen now, you know why? Paul was getting ready to go into Asia with the gospel. And the Holy Ghost came and forbid him and said, Don't go into Asia, go into Macedonia. And the gospel took a western shift. And when that happened, you know what you find? Everywhere the gospel enters a culture and a society, you find uh, prosperity, you find education, you find advancement. That's the reason you and I are sitting here today is because the gospel made it. I know, I know that the government, I know that higher education would tell you that all these things are a hindrance to cultural development. But let me ask you something. I know the president keeps talking about all these scientific achievements of Muslims, but I just ain't never heard nary one of them. Somebody say amen right there. You know why? Because the gospel makes a difference in a culture. It makes the difference. I believe in capitalism. But we're not prosperous because of capitalism. We're prosperous because of the gospel. I believe in liberty and freedom. I believe in property rights. Listen, I believe you ought to have the right to buy a piece of land and defend it with a gun. Somebody say amen. But that's not the reason we're prosperous. The reason we're prosperous and healthy and we're advanced just because the gospel has been present in our culture. That is what has made the difference. But do you know that Christ didn't come to this world just to make us prosperous and advanced? God didn't come to this world just to advance higher education. God didn't just come to this world so that your marriage could be fixed or so that you could get out of debt. Listen, all those good things, and I hope they happen for you, but the reason that Christ Jesus came into the world was to save sinners. He looked at sinners and he said, you're dead and you're defiled, so I'll come and I'll make you alive and I'll forgive you of your offenses. We see salvation from the view of heaven. Then I want you to notice a third thing with me. Look down at verse number 14. We see not only the sinners at the cross and the salvation of the cross, 
But verse number 14 shows us the satisfaction of the cross. Verse 14 says, Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to His cross. This is going to... I hope you listen carefully to what I'm about to say because I want you to understand it. The primary goal of the cross in your life and mine is that we might be saved. Amen? But the primary goal of the cross in this universe was that God's holiness and righteousness might be both vindicated and satisfied. I'm going to try to explain this very carefully. Paul says that Jesus Christ is the Savior of all men, especially of them that we believe. There's some folks that believe in what they call limited atonement. The notion that Christ only died for those that would accept Him. But now here's the problem. It's not just those that would accept Christ that offended the holiness of God. The lost sinner, let me tell you something, the lost sinner that lives in rebellion and unrighteousness and dies and goes to hell, he too offended the righteousness and holiness of God. You say, but he paid for his sins when he went to hell. No, he didn't pay for his sins when he went to hell. He died and went to hell because he rejected his only hope. But he's in hell eternally, and that tells you that he never paid for it. Because if he could pay for his sin, at some point, the sin would be paid for. No, when Christ died upon the cross, he died and he satisfied God's offended holiness. God made a law, said, this is what's right, and the soul that sinneth it shall die. I am God, I am righteous, I am sovereign, I am complete, and I am in control. Man said, you may be God, but I'm going to live the way I want to live. And God's righteousness and His holiness was offended and trespassed upon. The only way that could be satisfied was someone that was worthy had to die in our place. When Christ died upon the cross, we see two things that were satisfied. I want you to notice first stop that the obstacle was removed. Notice what it says. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us. It's talking about the Old Testament law. And you know what it's saying? It's saying that the Old Testament law stood as a barrier between me and God. Uh, God said, uh, we looked at God and said, why can I not approach unto you? And God said, well, if you meet my standard, you can approach to me. And we said, well, God, what is your standard? And He laid out over 600 commandments in the Old Testament. And He said, keep these commandments. Well, God knew that we couldn't keep them. They were our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. Do you know why that is? Because they showed to us not the way to God, but to show us that there was no way to God. They weren't there to show us how to live righteously. They were there to prove to us that we could not live righteously. We said, God, what is your holy standard? God said, this is my standard and you can never meet it. And so all through the Old Testament, the law is presented as a hindrance between man and God's fellowship. God created man in perfection and innocence in the garden. But when they sinned, what did he do? He expelled them from the garden and he placed in their pathway an angel with a flaming sword. By the way, that's the first time that the word sword is found in your Bible. And uh, it pictures for us that the righteous Word of God, His holiness, His standard, His law, was set as a barrier between us and God. Let me give you another example. When the Old Testament priests would approach unto the presence of God, there was the outer court or the court of the Gentiles where anybody could come in and 
and work and uh, do uh, the, the ministry there and, and uh, present sacrifices to the priest. Then there was what we call the holy place, and that was where only the priests could minister. That's where they'd go and offer these sacrifices. But then there was a place, just a little room, about 15 by 15 foot, that was called the Holy of Holies. It was here that the Ark of the Covenant sat. It was here that the mercy seat resided. It was here that the Shekinah glory of God would sit down upon that throne. He said this, you'll build an Ark of Shittim wood and I will make my throne there. He said, I'll come down and I'll sit down there. And once a year upon Yom Kippur, the high priest would take that perfect spotless sacrifice and would slay it and would put the blood upon the mercy seat and uh, God would sit down and meet with that high priest and view that blood and the sins of the nation of Israel would be covered for another year between the holy place where the priests could go and the holy of holies where only the high priests could go. There hung a large curtain. This curtain, I wish I had enough time to go through it. Every single bit of it is significant. But the Bible speaks about that veil in Hebrews. And it says the veil, that is to say, His flesh, speaking of Jesus Christ. In other words, that veil represented to us the very same same thing that the flesh of Christ represented. He came, He lived as a human being, and He lived spotless and sinless. He kept God's holy law. He didn't do a single thing wrong. He was the perfect and divine example of what a Jew ought to be. And then that served as a barrier for you and me. God said, here's my standard. And we said, nobody can keep that standard. And then Christ came and kept that standard. Oh, and if that veil had stayed together, you and I, we'd still be eternally separated from God. That veil would still represent a big stop sign when we came up to God's presence. We'd come up and say, Lord, I want to meet with you. And He'd say, you can't because you're a sinner and you're imperfect. And we'd say, but nobody can. And He'd say, but Christ did. But there upon Mount Calvary, the veil was torn. Christ died upon the cross of Calvary. And when He did, listen... Not only was the obstacle removed, but the offenses were reconciled. It says that He took all those handwritings and ordinances, all those things. God said, this is righteousness. This is holiness. Well, Christ came and lived 33 and a half perfect years. And He said, all right, God, here's your standard. I kept it. Here's your checklist. Every single law, every single commandment has been kept without offense, without mistake by Me. Your righteousness has been satisfied. I've done it. And now here are these sinners. They can't do it. They can't keep the law. But I'll tell you what I'm going to do, Lord. I'm going to take that righteous life and where they should hang on the cross. I'm going to take them off the cross and I'm going to nail my righteousness to the cross. And I'm going to allow it to stand for their righteousness. And your law will be satisfied. Romans chapter 3 describes it this way. This is so beautiful. Listen carefully. It says, being justified, verse 24, freely by His grace through the redemption of that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation. That's the New Testament word. You know what it means? It means a taking away. To be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. So in other words, 
When God looks back into his bank account and asks, has the debt of their sins been paid? It's been paid. He, he's been justified. Uh, the Bible talks about Christ being justified in the flesh. The righteousness of God has been satisfied. It has been vindicated. He need not worry that there are offenses unpaid. But listen now, because Christ satisfied through His perfect sinless nature the holiness and the offense or the holiness and righteousness of God, but then He placed that righteousness upon the cross for you and I. God can also look down at you and me and He can say, and I can justify you if you'll put your faith in Him. We see, and I, I'm going to say a couple things and be done. I've preached too long. Somebody say amen to that. We see not only the sinners at the cross and the salvation of the cross and the satisfaction of the cross, but can I just close with a quick word about the score of the cross? Well, what was the outcome? How do we measure it? What was the outcome? Listen to what it says in verse number 15. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. As we examine the cross of Christ, let me tell you something. If numerical growth is the only means through which we measure a ministry, then the cross was a failure. Then the ministry of Christ was a failure. If we were to measure it by the popularity of the person and the central figurehead, then we could say that even to this day, Christianity could be considered a failure because the world still hates the light and still loves the darkness. But you see, when we ask God what He thinks about it, when we ask God, how do you think the cross turned out? Well, God says, when I sit back and look at it, I see that the villains have been defeated. He says he's spoiled all principalities and powers. There's a lot could be said about that word principalities. It's very interesting. You'll find it 58 times in your King James Bible. And 40 of those times, you know it's presented to us as this word, beginnings. Uh, And uh, other ways too. But I think it's interesting because uh, there's two ways we can understand that. One is that the term principality deals with rulers and magistrates. We know that Satan is the god of this world and he has been defeated. But then I think it can also be understood this way. What started out wrong can be made right through the cross of Calvary. You say, I've had a rough beginning, preacher. Yeah, but you don't have to have a rough ending. Preacher, listen, I've, I've done a lot of things wrong. Well, what do you think Calvary's for? What do you think the cross is for? Uh, He didn't come to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. You say, preacher, God couldn't save me. I'm too much of a sinner. Neighbor, you're the one God's looking for. That's who he came for. But then I see that this term, principalities and powers, is also present in the book of Ephesians where it says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And it reflects to us the idea of the unseen powers of the spiritual realm that would seek to hinder and prevent the cause of Christ. You know what God says? Can I just put it this way? God says, I looked at it, and Christ won. He won. He won. When I look at the cross of Calvary, I I don't see that sin has overcome. I see that sin has been overcome. When I look at Calvary, I don't see that the grave has prevailed. I see that death grabbed hold of Christ. And the book of Acts chapter 2 says He was not able to be holding of it. When death grabbed hold of the Son of God, it said, Woo! And let go. I don't want no more of that. And I see that (laughs) 
For as much, the book of Hebrews says, as he hath been made partaker of flesh and blood, that he through death might destroy him that had the power over death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through their whole lifetime were subject to fear and bondage. You see, uh, everybody fears death, but the believer doesn't have to fear death because Christ has already destroyed him that had the power over death, that is the devil. The villain has been defeated, but I see that the victory has been declared. 1 Corinthians 15 says, I'm going to read it to you, and then I'm going to hush. I've already said that a bunch. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, O death, where is thy sting? And O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. Oh, but he's forgiven us all of our trespasses. And the strength of sin is the law. Oh, but he took the blotting of handwriting and ordinances that was contrary to us out of the way. So what are we left with? But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something, it's easy sometimes to feel like we're losing. You look around at this world, it feels, as Christians, it feels like we're losing. But don't forget, man, the general ain't even showed up yet. <laughs> you know? It's easy to get discouraged and say, man, we're losing this thing. Yeah, but their captain has been out on the battlefield for 6,000 years. And ours, when he came, he came as a lamb that was slain. Next time, he's coming as a king that is conquering. I mean, the one with the sword hadn't even showed up yet. Oh, how discouraging it can be. But just don't forget, Jesus is coming back. If you could see things the way that God sees them this morning, you'd see in the cross the greatest victory that has ever existed. And I invite you this morning to see it like God sees it. And if you're here without Christ, I invite you to see your greatest need the way God sees it. And not leave this place until somebody can take a Bible and open it and show you how you can know from the Word of God how to be saved. We have plenty of folks that would be happy to do that. And you don't have to leave this place a lost sinner. You can leave this place a redeemed, born again, not perfect, but forgiven child of God through the blood of Jesus Christ.